You're listening to the Pandemic Podcast. We equip you to live the most real life possible in the face of today's crises. My name is Matt Botker. I'm joined with my good friend, Dr. Stephen Kissler, an epidemiologist at Harvard School of Public Health. Dr. Mark is gone once again. He's at the hospital. We had a week off. It was Labor Day, so we chose not to labor. Well, I don't know. At least not labor with Pandemic Podcast. How's it going, Stephen? It's good, Matt. How are you doing? Doing well. What did you do for Labor Day? I got to go out for a bike ride, which was lovely. Nice. Just got around the city a little bit. And yeah, the weather was beautiful. It's starting to feel like fall up here. So uh, yeah. Great. Yeah. Uh, gosh, what did what did we do? We took the week off, which sounds lovely, but it wasn't. We, we <laughs> totally just like gutted our basement, tried to get ready for homeschooling. We have our first in kindergarten. We decided to keep him home for the year. It was just complicated uh, with all the back and forth of online in class. So like, you know, let's just let's just be at home. So we did that, which we have a small house. Now, I shouldn't complain for those of you in Boston or New York. I mean, your homes are like little <laughs> cubicles, right? So it's bigger than the average house, but it's small for us with three wild boys. So we spent our time gutting our basement and then making a classroom, which is not quite finished. And I'm hearing them upstairs having one of their first days of school, which is exciting, and all the good job and affirmations I hear coming from the basement. So that's <laughs> what we did. It was an incredibly long work week, not a lot of rest, but now we're back to the grind. So Good to be back. Mark, I think, hopefully be back with us next week. Not sure mm-hmm. on his rotation and how it works, but we'll we'll uh, hopefully have him back really soon. Okay, a few things before we get started. Great, love the reviews. and got another great review from Bailey Cookie. I love these usernames. They're crazy. <laughs> so she says, best COVID podcast. I started out listening to several COVID podcasts over time. I started to delete those with fluffy content, excessive speculation, fear mongering, etc. Also, celebrity opinions regarding the pandemic are, in my opinion, irrelevant. Ah, oh, there goes Jason Raz having him on our show next week. <laughs> so, many, many podcasts just rehashed vapid daily news stories without adding any science-based perspective. This is the only COVID podcast that I currently listen to. It is the best. It offers useful information and insights. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you, Bailey Cookie, for that awesome review. It makes me really happy to read these, and I'm sure the same. Yeah, for that's awesome. Thanks. That's Dude. that's that's really that's great feedback. Yeah. It was great. And we also got some feedback. We talked about sometimes we can ramble for up to seven minutes, apparently, for <laughs> our personal lives. Uh, got some good feedback that people people liked it and they do like to hear it. So if you feel otherwise, Matt at livingthereal.com. Just email us. Let us know how, how you feel, how it's going, uh, what you want. We're trying to provide the best useful information. But we also want to do it through the context of being human. And uh, we have our own lives that we're dealing with. So we want to share that with you in context. If you'd like to support this show, Hugely, only $350 more that we need to raise to pay off all the equipment, and then we can just keep going with maintenance. So if anybody wants to help contribute to that, just a one-time, one-time uh, small donation, PayPal, Venmo, all that information's in the show notes. If you actually want to go ahead and do, uh, donate monthly, you can do that at patreon.com slash pandemic podcast. You can do it there as well. Great. A couple other things before we roll. Uh, before, I think we had the break last week and I had a new episode on Living the Real. Check it out. You can do that on any podcast player. Did one on Lean Love. I love this idea. So I'm kind of a geek. I follow the Toyota Way. I've read the book. It's Have you read the Toyota Way, Stephen? I have not yet, but oh, it's on my list. You got to get it. It's so good. So it's all about Toyota and just like how they change the whole course of their industry. And you know, I mean, everyone's a Toyota. No, I can't. No, I guess I shouldn't say that. I'm going to fight right now. 
Sorry, my bad. I take that all back. I'll edit it out. But a lot of people like Toyotas. Why? Because they're just really effective, efficient cars. And the reason why is that they had this lean principle they guided after the post-World War to really shore up their waste. And they developed these seven, now eight principles of, of waste. And so I just applied it to love, called Lean Love, talked about the eight different kinds of waste and how to apply it to our own lives and relationships so we can have less waste. And I'm not trying to have an efficient relationship, by the way. That's, those suck. But but a relationship that's effective, that's wonderful, that gets rid of the waste that's unuseful, and then reallocate that waste to something wonderful. So check it out. I love doing it. It's just the tip of the iceberg. I'd like to write more on this sometime soon. So check out Living the Real latest episode as well. Could also use your help. Stephen, you filled out the survey for me. Appreciate it as a, as a my guinea pig experiment for my pain <laughs> to profit. Yep. So it was really helpful. Loved what you wrote. It's just a great way that if you want to help me and help yourself, uh, go to livingthereal.com slash survey, just 15 minutes. It's all about addressing your pain points in your life. I love helping people get over those pain points and profit from them. Maybe financially, maybe not. Just actually find value in the struggles in our life. And by spending 15 minutes will help me understand what's going on in the struggles in your life that I can help address. And I'm going to pick five people, get on a phone call and just help for 30 minutes to make their pain point more profitable. So check it out. Love it. So let's get in to the good stuff while we're here, the pandemic podcast. We have a couple of questions. First, we have one from Sarah. We're going to hold that. Sarah, I know you're listening. When Mark gets back on, it's a great question. I think with all with both of them back, we'll be able to address that a little bit more intentionally. So let's skip to the second question by Harper. She was talking about, we've mentioned a couple of times before, Stephen, about these long haulers. And it's, it's, really, it's really kind of a recent, at least, at least on, the, on the scientific realm of just studying this, a recent phenomenon of what's going on. Her, she had a series of questions. One question was this idea of what would happen with long haulers if they got reinfected? It, it, would they, because of that long haul-ness of going on, would they have maybe higher immunity and so then it wouldn't affect them much? Or is this kind of a long hauler situation more part of them personally so that if they did get reinfected, they would follow the same kind of long haul effects of, of COVID? Any, any, any research or understanding of what, what, what might happen in that situation? Yeah, I mean, as as you said, you know, the, this whole long hauler phenomenon is still something that that we're trying to get to grips with as scientists, and it's it's not totally clear, you know, of course, what causes it. I think that one of the one of the leading hypotheses is that it, that it actually has something to do with with your immune system response, and not even necessarily with the virus itself. So. We do know with with some other reactions that people can have, you know, you, your immune system can react in odd ways sometimes when you get an infection. And some people can be predisposed to that. But even so, like, even if you have that predisposition, it's it's usually a rare kind of reaction. I'm thinking of things like Julien Barre syndrome or something like that, where you have like this sort of weird sort of haywire reaction to an infection or sometimes even in response to a vaccination. And that can happen to people, but it, it, we, we really don't have a good understanding as to why that happens. Mm. So uh, I think that in the absence of any further evidence, I would put my money on not much money, you know, I, I don't have much and I actually, and I'm not too certain on this. So uh, <laughs> this keep, keep both of those in bet. mind. Yeah. Uh, we, uh, we, <laughs> turns out we don't make much as postdocs, but <laughs> the, uh, I would say that the, whether or not you've become a long hauler probably doesn't really have any discernible correlation as to what would happen if you were to get re-exposed to COVID. I think that it would probably be the same as to whether uh, just a second exposure for anybody who'd, you know, gotten it in the first place anyway. We could be surprised, but but my guess is that that this 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 long hauler idea is, is and and syndrome is is something that kind of 
there's there's probably just a lot of randomness to it and Mm -hmm. and it'll be a long time before we understand it they're probably i i'm doubtful that there will be enough cases of it and enough cases of people who are long haulers who get re-exposed in a way that we can discern and detect that will actually be able to unpick that relationship very well and it'll probably be a subtle one anyway yeah okay so it's complicated. We don't know. But wish we give you more information. Another question she had is maybe this might have a little bit more behind it. You might have the answer about antibodies. So she talks about the idea, is it possible that people can get infected? She heard, is it true that some people can get infected with COVID, but then have zero antibodies after the fact? Is that true? Yeah. So I think that it's it's unlikely that you would have zero antibodies unless you were suffering from some very serious immunosuppressive condition or something like that. Your body will produce antibodies and and has to to clear the infection. But whether or not those antibodies persist is is a very different question. And at the length of time that antibodies persist, you know, I'm you know I, I'm a statistician. You all know this by now. And so I think of everything in terms of statistical distributions, right? You know, you, there's everybody. You can t- put together a population, and there's an average height, but people you know fall or along that entire spectrum. And and the antibody response and the length of that response sort of follows a similar sort of thing. You know, we think that there's there's this very strong mean antibody length of response where hopefully that's on the order of years, right? Yeah. But there are always going to be people who fall into those tails. Some people who mount this like incredible, really long lasting response and are never going to get infected again. And some people where it just, just kind of fizzles for one reason or another. And so I think the most likely scenario is that most of us are probably going to be protected for some reasonable amount of time, but there's always with any infection, whether it's SARS-CoV-2 or anything, there's always going to be some subset of people who you're just don't mount a response that lasts for very long. And the tricky thing with, with this is that we don't know who those people are. So we always yeah. kind of have to assume that, that, that we might be that person. <laughs> and so that, you know, and so, you know, I'm, I'm living my life in a way that where I always sort of assume that I could be infected, right? I'm always like, every time I go out, I assume like I might be infected and I might be infectious. And I think that even if I were to get infected and recover from COVID, I would still go around with that same assumption because of precisely this this phenomenon until we know more. Great. You know, a follow-up question on this, I'm just I'm curious, and Harper did not ask this question, but so there are some people who just for one reason or another may not uh, get the immune response that is necessary to have immunity for a, for a long time. Would that then translate to the vaccine for them as well, or are those separate, separate situations? Yeah, it's the same principle holds, although it won't necessarily be the same, like, it's not necessarily that the same person who doesn't mount a good immune response to natural infection will not mount an immune response to vaccination. Okay. So the distribution is the same, but but yeah. the individual responses could differ okay. widely from one to the next, okay. or even from one infection to the next infection. Oh, okay. Um, so. Man, it's complicated. Okay. Oh, man, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's get straight into the news now. Got lots of things. It's been two weeks we've talked about. This is old news probably for all of you who are listening. Uh, but I want to bring it back up. It, I think in the midst of Stephen and ours, our conversation two weeks ago, uh, it was just kind of ramping up and then we missed it over Labor Day. We saw it go all over social media that the CDC was reducing the death toll, something about like 90 some percent. So it caused another wave of alarm. See, I told you, conspiracy. And I, I wrote Stephen, like, what's going on with this? And then you were just saying, I'm in the midst of getting ready for journalist calls. I'll, you know, and it gave me a great summary. So what is going on? And was this expected, unexpected? Give us the, the information. Yeah, so this is this is kind of interesting. And I, as you said, I, I probably had five or six calls from different journalists at different places about exactly this question last week, because it, it really like generated a lot of 
controversy and confusion. So basically what happened is, you know, the CDC has been reporting data for uh, on COVID and on um, number infections and also the the number of people who are infected who also, in this case on their death certificates, also have other contributing factors listed to their death. And so I think that this came about either because they updated the way in which they were reporting that. Basically, they just like changed the spot on their web page where it was available, or maybe there was more detail. Or it, I, I'm not actually sure. It might have actually just gotten picked up by someone and then sort of spread like wildfire. But, but so the idea here is that there's this table that the CDC reported where at the at the top of the table in this like where they're basically in the legend of the table they say that i think it was for 6% of covid deaths covid-19 was the only only thing reported for for the cause of death and then the table is basically breaking down all of the other additional things that have been listed on on the death certificates that have contributed to the person's death now the the narrative that 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 came around that was that oh look you know there's you know what it was like ninety four percent of COVID deaths were actually caused by comorbidities and a person just happened to have COVID, but that's so so the problem is that some of these comorbidities that were mentioned were like respiratory failure and like <laughs> heart <Yeah. laughs> attack and, and like things that yeah. COVID can cause like stroke and like right so yeah. so what what the doctors are doing are are absolutely you know they're they're listing all of the things that a person may have had at the at the time of death. But some of these things are things that, that were directly caused by the COVID, and they're trying to distinguish, you know, what is it specifically about the COVID infection that caused this person to die? But when we think of the word comorbidities, we think heart disease and diabetes, yeah. right? And and so it's absolutely true that there are some people who have died who whose death was not caused by COVID. They were, they were carrying COVID at the time and got into a car accident or, or, you know, or maybe it was like complications from their diabetes, right? Like yeah. the, this absolutely happens, but... The the key thing, and, and this is this is the great irony of, of this thing, is that if you scroll down a little bit further on the page, <laughs> there's another graphic that shows the excess mortality in 2020 from all causes. Basically, just like how many more deaths have we had in 2020 oh. compared to previous years? And that baseline is is higher than the number of deaths that has been attributed to COVID. It's on the order of, I think it's like 200, uh, I, I don't want to, I think it's like 20,000 something. I, okay. I need to check the, yeah, the numbers sure. again. Yep. But and it follows exactly the the okay. confirmed cases of COVID sure. over time. So so we need to hold these two things together, right? We know that excess mortality is a lot higher this year than it has been otherwise, mm-hmm. and I don't think it's just because a lot more people have gotten diabetes um, <laughs> yeah, sure. all of a sudden in 2020. Sure. You know, and and it could be due to other things. You know, there are definitely people who are who have avoided preventive care because they've been afraid to go into the doctor, right? Like that's that's a real thing too. But I think arguably you could also say that those were to some extent caused by COVID as well, right? Yeah. Like by the social phenomenon of COVID happening sure. that that was also preventable in some sense if if we could have been able to to reduce COVID cases and make it more manageable early on. Mm-hmm. So holding all of these things together, excess mortality is still way higher than it has been in previous years. And that's absolutely attributable to COVID. Yeah. And and it's just the reason why there are these multiple causes of or you know these multiple contributing factors to death on a death certificate is like that that's that's standard practice in the hospital. Like you always, if a doctor is doing their due diligence, you're going to write down all of the things that a person had that may have contributed to their death, just because you want as full of a picture as possible. And so yeah. that's that's all it was, and it just got sort of blown out of proportion. I, you know, Steve, I'm just thinking about this idea of like I feel like you were before this pandemic happened. You were this quiet, kind of in your little cubicle, epidemiologist doing your thing. No one's mm. in, no one was imposing their their kind of lack of competency 
in your area of expertise on you, right? You were just doing your thing. I feel like what you're experiencing now is like what doctors experience daily when they come in like, well, I Googled this and you're saying it's <laughs> this, but I think it's that. You're like, oh, no, because of X, Y, Z, double Z, B, C, right. D. And so now it's like, now it's the same thing where we have people, this has been going on forever. This, this reality, comorbidities, all these different lists. But now we, the lay people are like, Hey, can I see your book for a second? Can I peek in there for a second? Oh, wait, what's all this? Have you been hiding right. stuff from us? Like, Oh my gosh. And he was <laughs> like, I have to do this. I have to, I have to educate you on this. And I can I just do my job. And I just, I feel like you're just, yeah. Uh, this is why you hunker yeah. down. You were, you mentioned how kind of like probably good for you to stay out of the news a little bit because you got to do your job. You got to do yeah. your job and the research and your data and not be swayed all over by us telling you how to do your job. <laughs> yeah. But I, I will say too, I mean, it's, it is, it is a privilege to some extent to be able to, to express these things. I mean, one of the, like, uh, this is maybe a personal digression, so sorry for the people who who, who, don't, who don't like the banter. <laughs> <Yeah>. But <laughs> but I also, I mean, I really love I, I I love teaching too, right? Like I love lecturing, getting in front of a classroom, helping students learn, you know, concepts. And it, it's all about taking you know complex ideas and distilling them into narratives and into ways where you 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 identify sort of like the key important factors and communicate them in a way that another person can understand. And, and I feel like I've been relying on that same sort of thing in communicating with the public. And, and in a way, it's like, it's, it's not surprising. You know, I, I understand why, why people really want to know what's going on and are, and are developing these, you know, hypotheses and theories all the time, right? Like these, these, these things have a real immediate bearing on our lives. And in the absence of, you know, direct access to an epidemiologist, we kind of have to make some of these, these conclusions on our own. And so it's, you know, of, of course there are frustrations about it, but there is also this real, one of the things I've enjoyed most about my work over the last few months has been exactly this about like realizing these misconceptions, having people who really in good faith are like, there are these, these disparate sources of information that I just can't make sense of. And I have no idea what's going on. Like, can you help? And, and that's great. Like that. I, I enjoy that more than almost anything else. So that's awesome. Yeah. No, this yeah. is great. I love, I mean, it's, just a huge opportunity. It's been great to be with you and learn so much about science and all the different ins and outs and realizing, I mean, again, I say this all the time, my life's completely shifted because of this, how I look at things. And uh, I'm just so unfortunately grateful. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I really wish I were totally irrelevant. Like I, <laughs> yeah, I would love to go back to my <laughs> cubicle and have nobody pay attention to me. But <laughs> totally. I think we're still a little ways out from that. Yeah. yeah you're, you have a couple of years probably. So, yeah. okay. Well, which, which hold on. We, we'll get to that in a minute about the pandemic century. Don't freak out people. I'm not trying to like say anything right now. I'm just, it's a good discussion point. Hold tight. A few minutes. Yep. We'll chat. About so Dr. Scott Atlas, this is a new guy on the white house, new advisor replacing. I don't even know. I, I, I can't follow. And we're not going to talk about the politics and that kind of stuff, but I just want to get Steven's opinion of Dr. Scott Atlas and you know, his credentials are great. He has awesome credentials. I don't think necessarily in the area that's being being discussed and being looked at. So that's one thing I want to get your opinion about. But the biggest thing is his 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 response or his plan. His his plan, I'm not trying to oversimplify it. I'm sure it, it, it constitutes many other factors. But what I've seen is one of the things he, he's been talking about is the, the idea that, hey, there are a lot of people who can get infected and it's perfectly fine. And this is going to help bring about a herd immunity, which is only going to help our country get to this new normal, right? So what do you think about what's going on with Dr. Atlas and particularly his response of this constant striving for herd immunity? Yeah, it's, 
So first of all, I, I, I don't think that this idea of herd immunity is is a viable one for really protecting like public health. I, I, I think it basically constitutes surrender. And and I don't think that it's a surrender that that I I don't think it's very defensible, um, and I can talk about why. But and, and like you said, there there are lots of different aspects to to his plan and and these sorts of things. So so I'm not necessarily drilling into like specifically like what what they're proposing at the moment. But but this notion I think is an interesting one because it's arisen many times over the course of the pandemic, right? Like mm-hmm. people have been talking about like oh look at Sweden or yeah. you know the UK. We have Boris Johnson who's you know famously said let's take it on the chin and you know like <laughs> right. So so but I think like some of the narrative around this is I I think that the per, per, Precisely that phrase is is an important one, like, and it and it it shows sort of what we're one of the one of the paradigms, one of the the ideas that we're entering into this with, which is essentially this idea that that is per- pervasive amongst a lot of infections that you know just the natural course is the best course, right? Yeah. Like we we shouldn't intervene. Our our economics is kind of like this too, to some extent, right? Like we think yeah. about like non interventionism with respect to like you know, economic, you know. So it's like it's like this deeper paradigm and this idea that that things can just sort of take their course and that that's actually the best course of action. And, and you know, sometimes sometimes that is the case. But in this case, the this, the arguments for why that might be the best case, I think, fall flat and are a little bit short-sighted, precisely because epidemics don't stay contained to the people who are low risk. If you have lots of people who are infected who aren't at high risk of uh, morbidity and mortality themselves, they spread it to other people. And, and part of the problem here is that... So, we know that COVID spreads through, especially through prolonged indoor contact. And so one of the highest risk settings for the spread of COVID is multi-generational households, right? So if we adopt a herd immunity strategy, households in which young people are getting infected, but then spending time at home with older relatives are the places where COVID is going to spread most. And those sorts of households in the US and the UK tend to be disproportionately represented by, by people who already have the worst outcomes for COVID. They, they tend to be minorities. They tend to be people who, yeah. you know, like, like it's right. So, so yeah. in a way it's basically trying, like what we're implying with this herd immunity strategy, if you actually take it to its logical conclusion is basically saying that like, there are certain groups that we're willing to allow to bear the brunt of this pandemic more yeah. than others. And, and I think that that's, that that's inadmissible frankly, because it, it sounds, it sounds so compelling, right? It sounds like, you know, we'll just build up immunity. We're going to have this really robust, strong young population that's going to be protecting the rest of society, but, but that's just not how epidemics work. And we're going to end up as as in the case of of Sweden, to some extent, you know, a lot of their elderly population has died um, as a result of this pandemic. You know, they have some of the highest mortality rate of, of any country. And and, as, and I think as, as a direct result of, of this kind of strategy and and so, you know, if we're going to debate whether or not herd immunity is a good idea, we need to debate on that level. Like, are we willing to accept that as the cost of this strategy? If so, okay, let's talk. And, yeah. But we need to talk about it on that level because if if we don't, we're we're ignoring mm. the actual implications of what we're doing. And I think that that's dangerous. And yeah. you know, and uh, yeah, is is just something that we can't do. I, I think it's inadmissible. But yeah, that's. You know. Brilliant, Stephen. I mean, it's so myopic how I'm thinking all the time. Thanks for opening my eyes all the time. It's like war. It's so easy to think about it, and, and, and it's kind of like far away, distant, press the button, a missile goes, even though it's just a completely absurdity. But being removed from it, you're like a little bit more complacent in allowing it to happen. 
but you're right. I mean, we can't just sit here and talk about, hey, let's build up herd immunity without talking about what that actually means and say the words, say the right. actual phrases and words of who's going to be impact on this. Because you're right, we're Americans. We kick our parents out or kick everybody out as soon as we can so we can live alone, right? Because a lot of us have the, the privilege of doing it. We don't like people around us. We're, people right. are icky, you know, on some level. But, <laughs> but, but that's not shared by everyone because they can't do that. And I'm just saying that's the right thing to do anyway. Like, I think it's probably better to have family in your house and actually have a life. But a lot of people can't do that because they have to support each other financially by living together. And what about those people? So thanks, Stephen. Just bringing that yeah. to the forefront of my mind is so powerful. And just this is where, like, it sounds geeky, guys, but like I almost get teary-eyed hearing this because I realized, oh, my gosh, like the extent of charity just or, or my lack of it out of ignorance or just trying to boil things down, simplicity, or again, this is a whole um, racial injustice, same thing, how I perceive, how I make my decisions or by what my circumstances are. I'm like, oh, my circumstances are this way. So this is a good decision. It shouldn't affect anybody. But however, that's not the way to think, right? Because people have very different circumstances and decisions can affect them way, way more gravely. And we need to bring that yeah. to the to discussion piece. Thank you, Stephen. Okay. Uh, a simple one. Oxford vaccine. Uh, I saw this last week. Uh, I don't want to say it correctly. AstraZeneca pauses mm -hmm. trial after unexplained illness. I th it seemed like this kind of created a splash in the uh, media. Is this something to be concerned about, Stephen, or are we going to have a delay? Uh, what does this mean for us? Yeah. So, I mean, it, it will... It will lead to a delay in the development of, of the AstraZeneca vaccine. But again, it's this is this is again phase three trials doing what phase three trials are meant to do, yeah. and it, and so you know it's it's definitely unfortunate and and I think important to pay attention to that there was a patient who who may have had an adverse effect to the vaccine. Right? We, I, as far as I know, we still don't know for certain if it was in response to the vaccine. Although I, I think it it likely was. And we know that vaccines do sometimes have adverse effects in people. Like that's that is absolutely something that happens with with many different vaccines that we have available. The the key thing is that, you know, as with everything, it's it's the risk benefit analysis. And the fact that there has so far only been one reported case of this, despite the fact that there are multiple vaccines currently in phase three trials, I think is actually quite encouraging. Yeah. Because that suggests to me at least that the rate of this kind of thing is is very low. Mm -hmm. So I this is this is again just sort of par for the course. This is the way that trials work. The the developers and scientists are gonna do their due diligence to figure out what happened to this patient um, and then hopefully get things moving again. But again, there there are many, there are multiple vaccine candidates currently in part in phase three trials. And so this certainly doesn't spell the end of or, or even necessarily that significant of a hiccup in our uh, development of vaccines. So I'm still pretty, pretty optimistic about that. Okay. Well, this is now related to this for sure. And this next, the CDC sends urgent requests for COVID vaccine plans by November 1st. We're not going to talk about the date, get into this kind of the theories of what, what's, what may or may not be behind this. But what I want to get to is we just talked about this, gosh, it was a couple weeks ago. We talked about how... The idea, the content of rushing the vaccine, we see this with Russia, we see now we talked about, we see it with China, and that we, we do, this is not the right thing to do and that we need to do our due diligence. And now Fauci comes out and says, hey, there is a way by which we can fast track a vaccine and still be science-based and basically, you know, follow this, the, the phases. It's in phase three. It goes swimmingly, Right. Which, which I'm not sure, I, I know I'm not going to put words into your mouth. I'm not saying it is going swimmingly right now is what you're trying to say. But, you know, something like that, that we're in phase three and there's 
there's very little adverse effects so, or maybe none. So let's go ahead and cut it and move it into production. What's your, what's your response to that? Yeah. So, I mean, that, that is definitely a possibility and, and worked into the structure of phase three trials is this ability to fast track certain things. Mm-hmm. And, and that happens when basically, as Dr. Fauci was saying, like, if you have just this overwhelming evidence of a clear benefit and negligible risk, sometimes when that effect is so strong, then you actually have all of the evidence that you need before you've actually finished the phase three trial. And, and, and if you can demonstrate that, then you can basically call it off early and say, you know, then then we can implement this as a treatment. So so I think that that is a possibility. Now, one place where fast-tracked treatments are are relatively common is is actually in, in cancer medicine. And and so I, there's there's been, you know, some questions like, you know, we we do this for for cancer medicines, you know, why why can't we do this for a vaccine? It's like par for the there's a lot of cancer medicines that end up getting fast-tracked and come, you know, come to basically are used in patients before they've completed phase 3 trials. But I think one of the key distinctions here is that oftentimes these cancer medications are being given to patients who have no other alternatives. You know, they're not being administered to the entire population (laughs) at once, (laughs) and they're not being administered prophylactically, right? Like this is trying to get patients, you know, some of them maybe even just another couple months of life, which is a very, very different sort of risk benefit analysis than we're having with, with respect to a vaccine. And so with vaccines, the, the, the baseline for evidence and the baseline for safety needs to be much, much higher, which is why it makes fast tracking these kinds of things a lot more difficult. And so, so I think that's one of the key things to keep in mind. So it's, it's absolutely a possibility, but we would need like just absolutely golden evidence, you know, yeah. that, that, that the vaccine is safe and effective and, you know, like just incontrovertible evidence. And, Otherwise, then the trials need to be done. So. Yeah. And I don't know if you, this, this is beyond your, uh, your scope of, uh, of study, but right now you're, you know, we, we see this first one of, of a, a possible side effect that's, I don't know what it is, but significant. But you said there's like six other ones, at least in, in phase three right now, maybe seven other ones. And we haven't heard anything. And they've been in it for at least a month, if not two months. I'm not sure where. Is is that normal, or are we seeing the possibility that that this could be a couple just shining golden gooses that are not having anything? Uh, I did because I, mean, I mean, again uh, haven't been through a pandemic in my life, so I don't know whether this uh, a vaccine normally right away in phase three. There's always a couple hiccups, or is this unusual to have seven? I mean, who cares about the quantity? But having sure. one or two, just not having anything yet. Yeah, I think so. I would say that I'm I'm positively surprised by how many we have that that haven't run into hiccups yet, and, and that we have as far along in this stage of development. I think that the the vaccine development that has happened as in response to COVID is is unlike anything we've seen in the past. So it's really hard to compare to previous pandemics. So yeah, I think I'm I'm not entirely sure on the ins and outs. Like I'm I'm not sure if like we would certainly know if like as for the AstraZeneca trial, like if an entire trial were put on pause, that's something that would hit the news. But if there were other sorts of maybe less severe adverse side effects that didn't constitute a stop in the trial, but could potentially undermine the the risk benefit analysis, that might just not hit the news cycles in the same way. And so I think that you know. The again, the absence of hearing about these things does not necessarily mean that there that there's absolutely no adverse side effects or anything. I hope that's the case. Boy, yeah. that would be that would be fantastic. Be awesome. And it's possible, but but I think we just have to wait for the trials to be reported on before we really know what that what's going on there. Yeah. Well, don't you have your like your 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 phone numbers of every single vaccine made or player? Just give them a quick call. I'm like, hey, this is Stephen. 
What's what's yeah. what's what's the what's the what's the DL? <laughs> we got to put on the podcast. Give him a call. Yeah, <laughs> totally. So next one here. I am ignorant of this. I saw it in the news. I saw it come through. It looked fascinating. And then I was going to read it and I didn't even get a chance to read it. So I'm ignorant of this, but this is why I have Stephen to tell me all about it. This article says, a supercomputer's COVID-19 analysis yields a new way to understand the virus. What What is this? I have no idea because I haven't read it. Is this exciting? Is this new stuff? Yeah. So this is, if I've understood it correctly, it's it's cool from a geeky perspective. Okay. I don't know how much clinical insight it's necessarily given, but but the idea is, from from what I understand, is basically these these researchers took basically all of the different syndromes that they had available that people were experiencing with COVID, and fed them into a computer model that that basically captures how the human body responds to certain types of infections. So it looks at like previous infections and different sorts of imbalances that you can get in your body and like what sorts of symptoms those things can cause. It tried to do this like mapping sort of between the the symptoms that we've been observing with COVID and different patients and the different sorts of physiological changes that can take place to cause some of those different things. And as they let their computer chug for like a week or something, then it basically popped out this this hypothesis for for like what could be causing some of the some of the syndromes that that we're observing with COVID nineteen, which which gives sort of a physiological basis for for what could be happening. That, that's related to we've been talking about cytokine storms, which is this overactive yeah. immune response. And basically, what they're proposing is that yes, it's an overactive immune response, but maybe it's not cytokines; it's this other other element of the immune response that maybe we ought to be thinking about instead. Which is super cool. It's, Matt, have you read Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy? No. Are you? No. Okay. Yeah. So I don't know. This is this is going to be like this is going to appeal to probably like one of our listeners somewhere out there. But whoever's there, like man, it, like it, it reminds me of, of this like supercomputer deep thought where they like basically ask this supercomputer like, "What's the answer to life, the universe, and everything?" And it chugs for thousands and thousands of years, and then at the end, it pops out the number forty-two, and then you know, right? And so it, it just makes me think of that because I feel like something similar is going on here. So I, I think it may have turned up something potentially interesting. It's it's probably not something that. A, that a human clinician might not have, you know, stumbled upon at some point anyway. Yeah. But it's interesting. I think it's just an interesting, that's, an interesting side note in the in the sort of overall research around yeah, this thing. That's awesome. That, that makes me want to read that book, or or, or at least listen to it. So I don't have a chance to to read that often because yeah. that's a great forty two. We should name that our podcast. That just yeah, <laughs> that's right. forty two. Okay, awesome. One thing we have a big thing I want to chat about here, but before we get into that. I love this. Another piece from Ed Young on the Atlantic. There's lots. I'll put in the show notes. We're not going to talk about all of this. Just a lot of like one-liners that are pretty phenomenal. America's trapped in a pandemic spiral. He talks about. He starts out with this really awesome concept of these ants, and that they, you know, ants if they get trapped in their own scent, the leader, this they just circle around forever and ever and ever until they die off. And kind of Ed Young's trying to present that we're kind of in this kind of cycle right now. That we're just kind of going into this circle, circle. We're not actually making. M- uh, improvements and it's great. It's a balanced piece because he talks about the concept of the shaming of people going on the beach when actually being outside isn't really the biggest contributor and we're putting energy in these weird places and not in the right places and we're just going in these circles and we're spiraling out of control and we're just pointing fingers and you know why is this? It's it's manifold. Read the article. I'm not going to mention all of this. It's really important piece. I think you need to read it. The one piece I want to land on for a second, because Stephen talked about this, did some research about this. He ends towards the end of this article about this idea of immunity from previous uh, uh, corona, uh, coronaviruses, the, the common cold. So I'll read this part. I just want to have you get your feedback on this. He's talking about 
this in light of people throwing this around as if some kind of, it's like a magical way by which this, this by a wave of this baton, everything's going to go away. And of course the answer is ultimately things are just more complicated and more nuanced. And we just can't find one thing or two things that's going to wipe away this pandemic. And then we're going to go back to our normal life. So he says, and is his brand of magical thinking in which some factor naturally diffuses the pandemic has been a convenient excuse for inaction. Recently, some commentators have argued that the pandemic will will imminently, sorry, I, I, I want to say immunity, but imminently <laughs> fizzle out for two reasons. First, 20 to 50% of people have defensive T cells that recognize the new coronavirus because they are previously exposed to its milder common cold causing, causing cousins. Second, some modeling studies claim that herd immunity, which we just talked about earlier, whereby the virus struggles to find new hosts, because enough people are immune could kick in when just 20% of the population has been affected. Stephen, go back to you. What's the, what's, what's the truth of this? I know you did some studies on the common cold. Any, anything new that come from that? And also just quickly, is there anything relevant to this 20% of population to, to, that could bring about herd immunity? Yeah. So both of those, um, something that uh, we've been thinking about a lot. So there've been a couple of recent articles that have suggested that there could be some basically cross-reactive antibodies that you get with the common cold coronaviruses that that might recognize SARS-CoV-2 infection. Now, that could be good or it could be bad actually because there is so it could be it could protect against SARS-CoV-2, but one of the things that people were concerned about and I don't think that this is probably too much in play, but another thing that can happen is what's called antibody dependent enhancement where actually your immune response helps the new virus to enter your cells oh, and give gosh. you a worse infection right uh. so it's like it's like not clear like just because you have antibodies from a previous coronavirus that that recognizes the new one is is not necessarily good news either so uh, but i think again you know we were talking earlier about holding all of these different sources of evidence in yeah. mind and now we have to keep in mind that the coronaviruses are in in temperate regions of the globe are our wintertime viruses. And there are a lot of places where earlier this year, right on the heels of what would have been their seasonal coronavirus season, nevertheless saw massive outbreaks of SARS-CoV-2. So whatever was happening, those coronaviruses were not protective enough to prevent epidemics in these places. And so from an epidemiological perspective, while there might be some protection there, it's not going to be enough to save us. And it's not going to be enough to cause the pandemic to fizzle out. There's going to have to be other things in place. And, you know, earlier on, there's there like, you know, it, it's the, the sun is going to burn the virus and it's just going <laughs> to totally. fizzle. Right. And like, you know, yes, there's there is probably some degree of seasonal variation in transmission, but it's again, it's not going to be enough. Because, you know, we see transmission in places that are very hot and very humid. And so you just sort of have to hold all these pieces of evidence together. Now, with respect to herd immunity, it's true that that the, you know, some of the rough calculations for herd immunity don't take into account the structure of populations. And if you do account for the fact that populations are structured and also that the people who are most likely to spread COVID are also the ones who are probably going to get infected soonest. That basically tips the the number of people who need to get naturally infected a little bit lower, which which means that in theory, we might need fewer people in the population to get infected to reach herd immunity. 20%, maybe I would guess it's probably a little bit higher than that, maybe much higher than that. It's still unclear. But, but the key thing is that even in places that have seen very bad epidemics, there are still like... The, the the immunity is still far from that. Like there was recently an antibody study in New York City, and and the the prevalence of antibodies in Manhattan was still ten percent, maybe. That's not enough for herd immunity, right? Yeah. And and that's New York City, right? Yeah. So so we're still a long way off from yeah. that. 
And, and I think that's worth keeping in mind that, that herd immunity will eventually be the thing that causes this pandemic to end, whether it's through natural infection or hopefully through vaccination. But we are not close to that. And we still haven't seen quite what this virus can do. Yeah. And so I think we need to, to really, really not rely on that to, to save us. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. This leads a couple of things is the vaccine I saw here that Maybe the FDA may approve a vaccine that has at least 50% effectiveness. I'm just curious. I mean, in my mind, I'm like, that's a failing grade. You know, if you get a 50% in school, it's, you, you got to retake the class, right? I'm assuming that's not the way to look at this. Even having a 50% effective rate, will that, do, will, that, will that do something significantly to help curb the pandemic here in the U.S.? If that's the case, if it hits 50%, not above. Yeah, uh, it'll help for sure. But again, it's it's like it's one of these things. I think this is one of the concepts that's been so difficult in society is that even even a vaccine will be one of many interventions that help us get out of this pandemic. Right? Mm-hmm. We have all sorts of things at our disposal, which include distancing and masking and testing and a vaccine. But especially if a vaccine is only fifty percent effective, and especially if only fifty percent of people are willing to get the vaccine, which is sort of what it looks like in the U.S. Right? Like that's that's not going to get us close. Like that will help. That will help. But there have to be other things in place as well. Yeah. And so that's that's kind of the scenario we're in, where where a vaccine isn't sort of this like the savior that's going to swoop in and end everything. It's going to be just one more tool in our arsenal to help us get through this. Yep. Great. So let's get into the, this big topic. We'll spend a few minutes running long here a little bit, but I love this article and it's, it's, it's kind of, it's kind of the creating a buzz in some sense because we're dealing with this pandemic, our minds on pandemics and are we in the era of pandemics? I know even Fauci, I think, had mentioned this before, that this could be the era. And I, I don't know what that means exactly. So I wanted to throw it to you and just discuss this This article because COVID-19 might just be the first big pandemic of this century. And this being kind of the century of pandemics, which just sounds absolutely nauseating. But at the same time, I feel like, you know, I'm hoping that we're learning so much with this first one that whatever, you know, maybe a long time from now, the next one happens, we've got a system in place to really effectively address it and not have it change our lives for three to five years before we can get back to our life. So I, I think the, the, there's a couple of things I want to ask you about. You know, if, if we're living in an age of pandemics, what makes this a particular age of pandemics? There's things that we have done that, 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 that contributes to an atmosphere that's ripe for a pandemic. Yeah. So I think this is interesting. I, I might differ a little bit from that, that notion that we're necessarily in the age or the century of pandemics. We've seen a lot of pandemics through human history. Like we've, we've probably been in periods of pandemics more often than not. You know, there's been waves of bubonic plague that have swept through Europe and killed half of the population each time around. And that lasted for hundreds of years and cholera and, you know, typhus and influenza and all sorts of things like, like, like I've seen a lot, you know, and, and, and so now, okay, so. But the types of pandemics that we've seen have changed. So, so a lot of those previous pandemics have been largely, you know, now in hindsight, we know that they could be attributable to poor hygiene by modern standards or, you know, things like that, that, that we've been able to prevent, like, right. We haven't seen a bubonic yeah. plague pandemic yeah. in, in a, in a while, you know, actually more recently than, than you might think, but, it, but, but we, you know, it's, <laughs> it, 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 it's still been, you know, it, the, the types of pandemics that we're seeing are now shifting towards these like respiratory influenza type pandemics, 
but also others, right? We have HIV. Cholera was was a pandemic, and and I think still is is to some extent. Um, I, I need to go back. Like pandemic, the definition of pandemic varies depending on who you're talking to. But like, <laughs> you know, we have multiple ongoing pandemics right now, and and we had multiple pandemics. We had a couple flu pandemics in the uh, in the last century, and yet here we are. So I think that that really the key thing is that we're entering an age where a certain type of pandemic that sweeps quickly across the world, like SARS-CoV-2, is possible and is and, and there is an increasing probability of these types of pandemics for a couple of reasons. Now, one of the ways that we know that pandemics arise is through zoonosis, which basically means that a, a virus or a pathogen crosses over from an animal population where it commonly circulates into humans and then is able to spread from human to human. And, and that happens with flu. That's That's where we think that flu pandemics come from. That's where we think that SARS-CoV-2 came from. That's where we think that HIV came from, right? Like all of these things, that's where we think Ebola came from. And so one of the issues here is that if if the interaction between humans and animals is one of the ways that pandemics can get their spark, then as, you know, as animal habitats are being eroded, as humans are encroaching on the habitats where you know, animals tend to be, we're, we're increasing the rate at which um, these interactions can happen that that potentially could spark a pandemic. So, some of the same things that you know contribute to urban crowding and industrialization, and you know the farming practices that sort of you know wipe out animal ecosystems and sort of push people right up on the edge of, of these things. You know, all of these things are absolutely contributing to the development of and and to the emergence of new pandemics that we'll have to face over the next century. Now, we we get a couple of flu pandemics every century regardless. Uh, I was a little bit surprised that this pandemic was a coronavirus one because I was expecting a flu one. We're we're, mm-hmm. we're kind of due for one. <laughs> you know, which is, you know, I hate to, I hate to say that, <laughs> but but it, so so there will be more pandemics this century. Yeah. Absolutely. And some of them will be, you know, to some extent attributable to to this more frequent and different types of interactions that people are having with animal populations and the spread of the population, that kind of thing. So I think that that's kind of what we're getting at here is that some of these factors that are contributing to, you know, all, you, you could link some of them even with like other ills that we're trying to to face, including like global warming and these sorts of things. It's it's not that like global warming is a cause of pandemics, but I think that they're they're they're, they share related causal factors to yeah. some extent. And so part of the thing is that addressing both of these issues can, you know, at a deeper level could, could potentially help us address both, which is an important thing to keep in mind. But yeah, so we've had lots of pandemics, but I think the key thing that distinguishes us now is that we're actually in a place where we can prevent them more easily. You know, previously, like, we're, we 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 didn't have a robust germ theory yeah. for a very long time, right? And then, and because of that, we we couldn't really know like how to intervene against pandemics. So we were sort of at their mercy. So I think yeah. what actually marks this new era is not necessarily that it's an era of increasing pandemics, but it's that this era it's this era of like dissonance and irony because we know what causes them and we kind of know what we need mm-hmm. to do to stop them. But but now the question is, will we have the will and will we have the, the effort that we need to put in to do that? I think that that's the key thing that distinguishes this century from all others. That's great. You know, we were talking about this off the air and you already mentioned it, but I want to kind of reiterate because I loved what you were saying is I had a friend come to me again who doesn't really necessarily agree with uh, coronavirus and pandemic and it's, it's a conspiracy. And, and, and again, I don't know if this is true. So we haven't looked it up yet, but I'll look it up. But apparently, allegedly, one of the premier members of WHO said something like, like the reason why COVID exists is because of global warming. So then he hijacked it and said, see, I told you it's conspiracy. It's another reason why people are just trying to use this to like 
promote their puppet initiatives. And so again, I don't know if that's true, but the concept was important. You were just saying, I love this. Like whether that was said or not, what the the purpose, the point of this is that both coronavirus and you were saying global warming, it's not that one caused the other, it's that they share a similar cause with that goes up the chain. And if we address right. that parent issue, we begin to address both issues at the same time, which is what we want to do. Right? We want to kill two birds, with one stone. And not to put that in lightly because we just talked about animals and touching them. Let's not go out and get rid of them. That's not the solution to the right. problem at all. But I want to end on this, and this might be putting you on the spot. We talked about the, the micro solution. Wash your hands, put on a mask, keep your distance. But what about the macro solution? Now, I know this is not a solution, but when we talk about this on a, on, a, on a global scale, on a much more preventative measure, what are what's one, two, three ways to think, do, to help do our part to keep it in an environment by which it's not, fall, it doesn't fall prey as well to a pandemic? Any thoughts? Yes. Yeah. I mean, that, that's an incredibly complex question because there are so many competing incentives there. Yeah. And, and it's one that, that, that people are, are working on diligently at the moment. But I think that, you know, one thing, of course, is, you know, being mindful as, as we are developing our countries and our economies and these sorts of things, just recognizing that this is an important, imminent existential threat and that, you know, just... I think the, that the, the response could range anywhere from you know, reducing some of the disruption of habitats and deforestation and these sorts of things, finding ways to do that by changing our economies, changing our patterns of consumption, these kinds of things. Like, right, these are like really big things, but I think that that's, that's the sort of thing that it'll take. Yep. And then also developing public health systems that are a lot more robust, that are able to detect these things quickly, recognizing that, that this COVID is not a one-off thing. You know, like this is, this is going to be something that we'll, we'll probably see something like this again, probably in our lifetimes, you know, yeah. and, and so recognizing that and, and not getting through this and learning, you know, ah, well, we, you know, it wasn't that crazy. Glad that's over and done with. We're never going to have to deal with that again. Right. Like we really need to like realize that yeah. like it's going to be, there, there are some economic adjustments and interventions that are necessary, but then also development of public health resources so that when these things do inevitably emerge, right? Because again, yeah. they have throughout all of human history, and I don't think that we can totally avoid them, but we can prevent this emergence of new infections from spiraling out of control, similar to what happened with, with the original SARS virus, right? Like we were able to contain that. And some of that was due to the biology of the virus itself, but a lot of it was due to quick and thoughtful response on the part of public health agencies. And if we can build that response globally, rather than just in particular countries, then then I think we'll have a much better shot at preventing these things from spiraling out of control like this one has. It's awesome. That's a great way to end it for all you young cats who might be listening right now or in high school. I don't know how many people are actually in high school listening to this or college, your career, your future. This is a great opportunity yeah. to really invest because this is this is the era by which really it's the new frontier. All right. It's a new it's the yep. new war to help give a, give the whole world a quality of life, right? Yeah. Thank you. Uh, so let's end this. If you want to get in, get into touch with Stephen, S-T-E-P-H-E-N-K-S-S-L-E-R on Twitter, Matt at livingthereal.com. Let us know how you're doing, what's going on in your side of the world, country, wherever it may be. Please support us. $350 left to help pay off the equipment that we can run on maintenance mode with the awesome, wonderful donors and Patreons supporters and check out my Living the Real podcast. Go to livingthereal.com slash survey. If you have 15 minutes, please be greatly helpful. And I hope you have a wonderful week and we will see you next Monday. Take care. Bye-bye.